everyone, welcome back to the Go It In podcast. My name is Yasmin and it feels really good to be back behind the mic recording another intro for you all because I haven't been telling too many Go Within stories on the podcast recently. So it's lovely to be back. This episode is with a good friend of mine, Simon, and we're going to be he's going to be telling his story really of how he went from living a life that was very dysfunctional. He was, you know, involved in some criminal activity, ended up in jail and this is his story of how he managed to extricate himself from that environment and from that way of being into becoming a lot more aware of himself and living a lot more holistic life. He's been uh, free of using any kind of alcohol and drugs for many, many years now. And um, those of you who've listened to the podcast know that uh, I myself have also been on that journey. So I always love to, to bring these stories because, to be honest, People who step out of <laughs> the drinking and drug taking um, habit is it's it's so rare. It's in in our society, it's still such a taboo to stop drinking, especially because you know a glass of wine here and there isn't seen as a bad thing, and and maybe it's not. But you know, for particular people who decide to go completely off any kind of substance, um, personally, I have a lot of respect, and I think it's always really beautiful to hear their journeys of what led to that. So. I just want to also take up a moment to remind you all that this podcast is uh, is it's a part of our Sanya mission and I just want to remind you that we're here if you have any if you need any support when it comes to stress, anxiety, taking care of yourself better. Lately I've been coaching quite a few people in so just supporting them to go within and learn how to meditate and you know, learning how to meditate is not just about the technique itself, it's actually about really going within and learning all of those patterns which stop us being at peace because it's very difficult to meditate when you have a lot of tension and emotional issues. So the psychological and the spiritual go hand in hand and I get so much fulfillment and joy from supporting others on this journey after my own quite few years experience in, in the field. <laughs> so... Yeah, thank you all for listening to the show, and uh, here we are with Simon Paul Sutton. Let's do it. Welcome, Sai. Thank you so much for this gift of this present moment together that we're going to share. And for everyone listening, thanks for tuning in. As you all know, this podcast is all about sharing stories of people who have gone within, because I believe that we need this inspiration and example so that we can learn from each other and find our way back to ourselves. So it's always a bit of a challenge for me, honestly, to find guests for this podcast because it's just simply not that common nowadays for people to be on a very deep inner journey. And these are the stories that I'm interested in. I don't want to hear like from people who climb the mountain or whatever, unless that same outer journey has been reflected in an inner journey. So... Simon, who I will be, I usually record a separate intro, so I like big you up separately when you're yeah. not here. Because I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to boost your ego too much. Please so. don't big me up. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it as low as possible. Well, what I will say is that Simon's a very good friend of mine. We've been friends for I think over ten years now, and your journey has always really inspired me. And I'm super happy to hear that you're actually writing your book. Yes. Very, very beautiful Which book. Which you read a, one part of the draft. Yeah, I think read. I read the first part of it. Mm -hmm. 
And I, I want to dive into that story a little bit. We're going to go way back because I think those initial stages of the Go Within journey are almost the most fragile and the most raw. And I think a lot of people relate to that story of the struggle that we all go through and we can have faith from hearing that other people made it through that we too will make it through so I'd love to just go back to the beginning and maybe you had some specific event in your life or some moment that that first inner call started to rear its head the first inner call Yeah, I guess that we could go. We go back to really the crime days. <clears throat> would probably be where, if there's any conscious memory of having a call, maybe there were some subconscious ones before that. But growing up in an, uh, a council estate in the UK, they're called council estates. They're like housing estates, and becoming a shoplifter at a very young age. Actually, it started when back then you had paper rounds yeah so there's not i don't know if there's even newspapers exist anymore but back then you had a paper round you used to do be a paper boy you go to the shop each morning and you collect a number of newspapers that you take to deliver into people's houses into their litter boxes and i would just uh, you know every now and again most days take some chocolate into in between the newspapers or slide them into my paper bag and, you know, because I felt like there's a lot in the shop, <laughs> there's a lot in the shop shelf and I want to have a little chocolate bar of my addiction at the time, which was also a sugar addiction at a young age. And I wanted to have that. So that what seems like a very, let's say, innocent thieving act sort of went from one thing to another. And the environments that I was growing up in were very, I would describe them as quite dysfunctional and also uh, the environments had a lot of um, domestic violence, which I didn't notice at the time, but that was really the sort of foundation of what I was growing up in. And, you know, I would go as far as saying, just violent communication. There's no non-violent communication, just violent communication. Even the subtleties that, that were, let's say, nor- norm, the norm, they were still quite aggressive and um, hostile is probably the best word. So anyway, one thing led to another, but, um, Early on, I started going into town, you know, went from going into shoplifting in shops and, and, and doing it really as a little sort of buzz and a sort of status thing of like, okay, how can, how can I get by? And I'm the man. Yeah, I'm the man, exactly. And in this town centre where we all hung out, there were the older boys who you sort of aspired to be, right, hanging around. And we would sell them little things from deodorant, Lynx deodorant at the time. I mean, that stuff burns your hairs off. I don't know. I don't think anybody should spray that on their body. But, you know, at the time, everybody was. And, um, you know, that's a great burner of the hairs. And then Garfield teddies and other, you know, tape, cause, uh, tapes and all sorts of different things. And then slowly that moved into being with a gang of guys and burgling houses in a nutshell, just to sort of fast forward ahead there. And then at the age of, after becoming what would be, let's just say, and I don't say this for accolade in any way, but a professional burglar. And the reason why I say that is because we were not just opportunists burgling one or two houses. You know, it grew from sort of the age 16, 17, 18, 19, where you know, on some nights we could burgle 10 houses in one night. So that maybe give your listeners a little context of like, you know, it wasn't just a a sort of um, one-off. And for those three years, up until I was caught 
we're in possession of nine ounces of marijuana because I'd, you know, as you do as a criminal, you just get involved in other things. So I became a drug dealer as well. And the crime was feeding the drug addiction and I was smoking marijuana all the time. And, and quite early on, around seven, I think 17, I took my first line of cocaine. And that really, yeah, cocaine and ecstasy tablets. Ecstasy was more desirable, but definitely the cocaine was this, again, this sort of, it was horrible. I don't know if anybody listening has ever taken cocaine, but personally, it's not a great drug. Um, and looking back, even even less so in my, in my imagination. Ecstasy you, was sort of desirable because of how it made you feel. It made you lose your inhibitions. It made you feel more connected. It made, sorry, I say you, it made me feel more connected, made me lose my inhibitions, made me feel you know this sort of opening this heart opening you could say <clears throat> and softening of the sort of hostile hostile life that um i was a part of and then thank i would say thankfully now maybe not at the time as a criminal because when you get caught that's not the greatest thing right <laughs> I, ideally the pirates are not supposed to get caught but i ended up in a young offenders institute at um almost my yeah just into my 19th year and so that was for accumulation of two crimes. One, the possession of nine ounces of marijuana. And the second one was the, the uh, I was pulled over in my car and they found a video recorder in the back of the car. So they couldn't fully associate me to the burglary that actually took place, but I was in possession of stolen goods. So that was very, that was actually very good, Yasmin, because had I been caught for the burglary of that house, I was probably looking at a much longer sentence because I'd already been previously convicted for this nine ounces of marijuana, probation, and just to throw this in there for everyone listening, also I'd lost my license for drink driving at the time. So I sort of like was in this, you know, I was in the soup of it. I was in the thick of it, as you say. And I, I was sentenced to um, four months in a young offenders institute. And I actually served in the end around nine and a half, I think almost 10 weeks. Um, so yeah, that's really where I got that's giving you a little background to Yasmin's first question, which is where was the first moment where I thought, okay, shit has to change. And that was really it. So, okay, this is like the bottom, right? This is like, okay, a criminal's life. Now I'm in jail. Where else is there to go? You have all these imaginations of films you've seen or what's going to happen. Am I going to be sexually abused? Will I, you know, will I survive? And I'm alone now. Because even when you with your gang, you, you're alone, but you sort of feel supported. Now I'm like, OK, I'm in an environment where none of my friends are around and so on and so forth. Well, that's what you think going in. It just turned out that when I was in there, I actually knew a few people. Because, you know, you, you're a criminal, right? So there were other criminals that also got caught that I knew, <laughs> which actually helped. But yeah, does that answer your question? So that's where I really got a, a first moment of like, is this the life I want? Is this the life I want? I'm sure quite a few people get to that point, get thrown in jail, and they don't change their life, right? They just keep sort of perpetuating. So there must have been something within you that at least you thought, hold on, this is not the life that I want to lead. Yeah, so when, when I, I remember sitting up on this little window. So we were basically locked up. You had to be locked up for, on average, 20... It was Because it was a young offenders institute, about 20... 21 hours a day so you don't come out of your cell you only come out for your food and you have a little bit of exercise and so on because you it's really the transition to jail where you then get a bit more free time <clears throat> and they said because it's a small sentence i may as well just stay there so i did my whole sentence there and most days i would be up on the belt on, on my windowsill looking out and that was i could you could just say that was really 
a time of self-reflection, actually. I mean, that's one potential that prison offers you, right, is the time to look inward. But like you said, I met many people. They'd been into jail numerous times. They kept going back in. They'd become the norm. Uh, friends, uh, one friend died of a heroin overdose. Others, I could sort of see a pattern of, you know, the life that uh, was maybe offered to me. And um, I just remember going, I didn't really know which way to turn, but it was like, if I continue as I am, I can pretty much see the, the, you know, the path. And I felt at that time that there's more to life than being a criminal. And also, and you know what? Yeah, something just come up. You know what? There was a moment. I'm just, this is just coming up now. There was a moment when I was burgling a house before I went to uh, jail. Where I remember, I just, I just remember this now. I remember putting down the pictures of the people because my, one of my roles was to be lookout. So I would have to look out. And often on the windowsills of people's houses, there was pictures of the people, right? And I remember, subconsciously or not, I started putting these pictures down face down because I couldn't deal with the guilt of actually, my conscience was saying, oh, I got tingles, look at that. I got the, my conscience was saying, this is not right. So I think there was a seed there that just come up now. And when I was inside, I was really going through that process, like this is not right. There's something wrong about this choices that I'm making. In, and I don't want to be locked up. This is not a life I want to lead. So yeah, so really that was like, okay, what am I going to do? I mean, I could fast forward you to a little aha moment. Should I do that? Yeah. So a little aha moment was when I came out of jail and, you know, you come out, but your ego is booming, right? Because you made it. You served time. And you come into these new circles, sorry, these old circles, familiar circles. And whereas I'm thinking, I want to change, guess what happened? People are like, pat me on the back, right? I done good. I served time. I didn't grasp. I didn't, you know, I, I'm more, I'm getting more revered. My ego's... You're more status. Right. More status, which is, you know, which is the, the fuel. And I was sat smoking a, a, a joint, watching Home and Away, right? You remember this part, right? And if anybody remembers Home and Away, it's an old Australian sitcom and it's pretty drab. It's bad, bad acting. Or that's my, my, my perception. And I was watching it stoned and I, they were doing this really funny scene. And I was like, oh my God, this is shit. Yeah? I can do better than that, right? Huh? I'm going to be an actor, right? Why don't I be an actor? And I'd, been, I'd done drama in school and so on. But this was, this was a lifeline for me. So yeah, so we had these few moments of, of points that like, go, how can I get out of this? Yeah, how can I change? And then these little key moments, and I'm sure there were many other subtle ones that supported that. You're kind of reminding me of when I tried to quit smoking weed and you have this intention to quit, but then your environment really holds you back. And I'd love to hear just a little bit about your time balancing those two. You know, you have this vision, you want to be an actor, yet your whole environment is surrounded by other criminals who are keeping you in a way in that life. Right. <clears throat> That's a great question, and I tell you why. Because it's not just it was not just the criminals. My mentality, my my programming, was I can only say really difficult to break. And I didn't even realize that for much much later, even when I started meditating and so on. You know, it's like really like the amount of choices that were driven out of familiar behavior were immense. Yeah, so to, to give you an example, <clears throat> okay, so on some level, I'm addicted to recreational drug taking. So every weekend, hedonistic lifestyle, cocaine, ecstasy, 
lots of alcohol. Pretty much most weekends, nightclubbing and so on. So that's one part. Then you've got the making the money from the drugs that I'm selling to this club. So even when I stopped burgling, which was a big step, where even I felt um, guilty and also that I'm going to be left out. And I had to let this younger guy come into the circle and take my role. And that was already like, oh, what am I doing? Am I doing the right thing? Then I move into like this idea of following the acting path, which was amazing. And I have a number of little moments that supported that, which were, you know, even some of my criminal friends were supportive of that, right? And so then I said, okay, I want to be an actor. But then, actually, my addiction to these recreational lifestyle and drugs, that just continued for a long time after this. And I couldn't tell anybody about this. So many of my choices going into this sort of, let's say, this acting world, this more normal reality, get a job, work and this was a challenge i'm working all month for a thousand bucks that i would make a thousand bucks sometimes in one night so that was one thing it's like wow why am i going to go into this society that i'm a rebel against anyway and now i've got to work in a stupid job i don't really like so that that mentality was trying to get me then the mentality of like i don't want to stop the hedonistic lifestyle this is where i get my fun although to be fair the acting world is not too short of drugs and recreation and drugs i'm so glad you brought that up because you know you don't know that until you go into it right <laughs> so that's so, so beautiful that you say that so i started meeting people new people different circles but many of them drunk alcohol many of them still took ecstasy tablets so i just started going oh, okay i'm sort of moving. how you to call them ecstasy tablets it shows you haven't taken drugs in a long time <laughs> right so then, then I had this, and then what I had to deal with, this might be um, nice for the people listening, is if I dropped deeper, what was I addicted to? I was addicted to the fear of the buzz of getting caught and the fear of uh, that sort of world of crime, of, of you know, this sort of adrenaline that you would get from either doing something naughty and so on so what i realized over that coming next several years is that what i was actually having to um, let go of you could say and battle at sometimes was that deep subconscious program around uh, the addiction to those sensations in my body and i'm guessing there was also this addiction as well to the toxic masculinity because from what I understand from your story and also having experience and lived through this myself as well, that especially young men get into this status war and power dynamic battle in a way and you always have to one-up each other and be the bigger man and be more dominating than the other. So I'm guessing that also played quite a role. Yeah, the alpha male. It was, yeah, I was totally, I mean... Much of the, even the crime, the growing up into that was always about, yeah, who's the best, who's the best, you know, who's the best man, who's the one that's got the best clothes, the best cars, you know, making the most money. And then, and then that just, of course, moved in. And I often use the term, Yaz, of um, you move into these different environments, but you meet the same people experiencing the same things, but we have a different colour jumper on. So I say we have the same, everyone's wearing the same jumper, different colour. So like I came out of one environment thinking, oh, now I'm in this new environment. And the environment has definitely changed, but it wasn't long before I started to see the same patterns of behaviour showing up. And so, yeah, as an actor, you want to be the best actor, right? So you in uh, 12 years, I was stri- striving to become an actor. 
and I did become an actor and I became a professional actor and I, I managed to go through theatre school and make that happen. It was beautiful. But still, that was very much the same ego-driven mentality that was driving me to be the best criminal. And I'm not going to just condemn that because actually at the root base of that, this was also all about survival. I was actually in deep fear of my own survival. And all of these sort of actions were, were moving me into how can I survive? And then even the acting, when you look at it, was how can I have enough money to look after myself, to look after my mum, to get me out of this lifestyle? All about money. Crime was, I don't want to be down in the, in the, 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 the downtrodden person in the group. I've got to make money. And, only, and I noticed the only people that seemed to be doing well were the people who had money, right? Either the ones that were doing the better drug deals or whatever. So my sort of idea of freedom, you could say, survival, was striving for success, money, fame, fortune. Yeah. Um, did that, does, that, does that touch on what you... What your idea? So in terms of toxic masculinity... This is twofold here. Um, many of the people who supported me along the way, and I look back now, were amazing, right? They were real guides, yeah? But most of my role models were also quite coming from that more toxic perspective. So that also had to be looked at and, and shifted, you know, along the way. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, I was reflecting on this some time ago, how we have this innate human capacity to grow our competence, to become more skilled and go up the ladder of competence in whatever it be, whether it's a criminal, whether it's an actor and whatnot. The thing is, what they all have in common is when we are striving only for the outer, not for the inner. Exactly. The dynamics are always the same and it always leaves us slightly unfulfilled and slightly lost because it's like we're missing the crux and we're, we're missing the true boon out of that growth challenge that we're facing so it's kind of interesting that you had actually so many parallels between yeah constantly <laughs> in fact i would say they were just paralleling until that journey inward which is you know we spoke a little bit about earlier today <clears throat> Yeah, it was all striving. I mean, even at times, if I look back, even the acting career, you know, there was so much disappointment and and um, craving and, yeah, just like, <laughs> it's not things ever good enough and the job you get is not good enough, you need the next job. It's always moving on to the next thing, you know. It was always trying to get somewhere. And it really was about that, yeah. So how did you shift that center of gravity from putting all of this importance to your outer world, your material striving, to suddenly thinking, hold on, there's something else going on here? I was just having flashbacks now because you start to tell your story and you start to get all these visuals coming up in your head. I remember like, you know, it went from one thing to another. I could, I could never keep full focus on, like, I'm going to be an actor, but acting wasn't paying. So what should I do in the meantime? Oh, I'll invest in property. Yeah, let me go to a weekend seminar and learn all about property development. Oh, now I'm investing three, four, five, ten grand, borrowing other people's money, putting that money in the pot because we're going to buy to let properties, right? Then it's like, that's happening, but it's not giving me what I want because it's empty and hollow, right? And I'm seeking money, but it's not happening fast enough because my idea was, Oh, when I've got all these buy-to-let properties, they will give me an income and I'll make my own films. Yeah, it's just, this mentality kept moving into other things. And then it was, 
uh, we ended up buying this, uh, I met this guy and we created a business and we started doing, wanting to invest in different products and sell them and get into sales. And if any of you know me, sales, you know, everybody's always said that I would be a great salesman. And the thing that I've resisted the most is sales, right? It's everything for sale. I don't want to be a salesman, I want to sell myself. And anyway, I did a few sales jobs. I go into this company, we start selling this product called Cocolada, right? And I'll tell you this, oh my Lord. So Cocolada was this product about, um, it was basically a, a, this entrepreneur in Austria was selling mustard tubes that his father had died from this huge mustard company, he's a very successful mustard company, but he would, mustard wasn't cool for him. So he wanted to put alcohol into these mustard tubes, right? So he made these uh, vod vodka drinks and these uh, pina colada drinks in these mustard tube shapes. And he on one of them put this sort of bell end cap. A bell end is like the end, you know, the end of the penis on the top. And he was, he was trying to distribute these drinks, which Daniel and myself decided that we would distribute them in the UK. This is why I'm trying to become an actor. Alongside, we did the math, and we're going to make millions from selling this cock drink. Right? Can you imagine? Right? right? So this is what I mean by slightly getting distracted from your path. But as I, as I went on, and I started to realise, oh, I'm, I'm doing all these different things, and I want money, and none of that will empty. It, it got to that, it really got to that point of, I guess I went down many different paths looking for the same thing that wasn't there. And that's really the key turning point. So for example, I needed to make movies and some movies, and I didn't make loads of movies, but I ended up getting one huge movie job, which was a you know great highlight of my career and showed that I could do what I was striving to do. And I had to go down that path to realize it wasn't the full path, even though it was the part of it, but it wasn't the end result. I had to go into these crazy businesses clearly for myself to realize that is not where it's at. So when you ask like, where, where was that point in? I mean, it happened, I think it happened on a number of different, you know, going to a point and going, oh, okay, it's not here, you know? And then you go down the next path, it's not here either, right? And if anyone can see me, I'm doing my little running trick. Now I'm going down here. It's definitely down here, yes. Oh no, it's not there too. Right? So, so it gets to that point where where else can it be? Um, by the way, you're just also reminding me, I think you had told this story in another podcast we had recorded where um, you had just finished recording that film and they decided to cut out all the audio. <laughs> <laughs> oh my Lord. That's such a like a blow to the ego as well. You've done oh all of God. this acting and then suddenly at the last minute they're like, okay, we're cutting all the audio. Yeah, yeah well, no, what happened, it wasn't just that. They, they made a problem with the recording of that. That was a huge film. But the, the essence of it, it was a 35, it was a prehistoric movie based 35,000 years ago, a love affair written by a French director, and it was an epic movie. But um, yeah, what happened actually is that they, they shot it and we created this prehistoric language, right? It was amazing. We was working with these uh, Bulgarian gypsies and we were doing this whole language, so-called prehistoric language that they, you know, decided to make up. French directors, super, super out there. And at the end, they decided to, yeah, so much of it was going to be... Uh, uh, changed because they needed to make it a sort of family movie so they wanted to do a voiceover and that voiceover wasn't with the voice of the character it was with some French voiceover <laughs> and the voiceover had to then sort of talk in the first person which is kind of like 
not right because it's based 35,000 years. Anyway, it became a flop, you know, and the whole movie was a flop. But the, the essence of that movie was actually very, very profound. And I'll tell you why quickly, because this was another peak change, is that you could say, love, come and kissed me, right? And I like to just use that term. And through that self-inquiry of really starting to ask, you know, where am I going with this? You know, is it, where, where am I at? You know, who am I? What's going on? The same sort of time of reading a few books, I met a woman, yeah, who, you know, who you met uh, briefly when we, when we moved here. And that meeting, that encounter was a catalyst. I'm not going to say is everything, but it was a huge catalyst of the power of love. And it wasn't just the power of love, like, okay, yeah, there's romantic love and I'm in love with this person and I'd had previous relationships. It was more like I've been kissed by something greater than myself. That's really what it was. And that the, the woman I met was a catalyst to that through the meeting, and that was a reference point, if that makes sense. And in that moment, it was like, ah, now it's time to face all your shit. Yeah. That's quite a big <laughs> jump to like <laughs> love, and now I gotta face all my shit. Yes. <laughs> How, like, what's the connection there between feeling love and feeling you need to face everything? Right. Yeah, that's beautiful. So, yeah, that just came out now, and no, it's beautiful because because that's so so we with the little bit that I've shared with your listeners, right? So we've got all this stuff going on, and you imagine there's so much more going on. But love, in my opinion, asks you to face yourself. It says, okay, now now it's time to look at yourself. So even if I'd subconsciously been asking, or and and you know clearly been asking like who am I what am I where am I going where is this going and noticing these dead ends or what I perceived as dead ends then it was like okay there you go I show you something more I show you that there's much more than what you've perceived so that in itself cracks you open right or cracked me open and then in that cracking open there's an initial high right there was a euphoric high to the point where I had been questioning what am I doing with the drugs and all that. And, you know, I wanted to change, you know I did, from the, even a young age, right? Even when I was in jail at 19. I'm now nearly 30 when this happened. I was 30 when this happened, this encounter. So from 19, that 11-year period was, a, you know, getting out there, being a nice, being the best I could be, kind. I wasn't necessarily harming people, probably harming myself more than anyone else. And then love comes and then goes, boom. Okay, there's something much greater than you. And then you're in this euphoria, right? I hadn't taken any ecstasy. I hadn't done any drugs. And it's like, oh, and I'm like, boom. And for like a month, I'm in quite a heightened state of being. That's how I can describe it. I would say I was on ecstasy, right? Because well, I wasn't taking anything. It was, it was similar. My, my, my awareness changed. The way I was perceiving things changed. It was like, well, you know, I could only really link it to that. But then, of course, like everything that goes up, we've got to come down. And when we come down, I started to really go, okay, wow, I'm, I, my actions and behaviours are having an impact on everything, on everything, on, on my relationships, on my community, on, on the space that I'm in, the environment I'm in, and so on. And also, yeah, I asked the question, really, is what is truth at that similar sort of time? And... In order to find out what is truth, I needed to inquire in myself, where have I been lying? And that was really 
that was what I mean by I had to face the shit. Because, <laughs> because when I realized that I'd been lying to myself and others, and also, although I'd gone into new environments, I was still very much withholding my past. My past was still there. It was like a, a sort of humdrum in the background of like, you know, some people knew, but very few in my new circles. And I was being held captive by those past crimes and things that I'd committed and the drugs I'd taken and the, and the sort of hedonistic world that I didn't want anybody to know other than the people that were in it with me, right? So then I had to start to face the actions and behaviours, basically. Yeah, that's what I mean by facing the shit. And then that starts... There's this beautiful saying by Jack Cornfield in a book called After the Ecstasy, the Laundry. <laughs> yeah. So there you go, for everyone listening. <laughs> Ecstasy comes... <laughs> Then cleaning got to take place. Stuck with the laundry. (laughs) So then the laundry started, and I'm pretty much still cleaning. (laughs) (laughs) Forever, forever cleaning. But beautiful. I mean, this is a theme, I think, that we can really dive into because we all struggle so much as human beings to see where we're lying to ourselves and to others. And of course, it all starts with the self, right? We don't lie to anything, Mm. to others that we're not lying to ourselves. I don't know if you've had any insights from your own inquiry into the energy around, you know, a lack of transparency, dishonesty, lying, whatever you want to call it. Why do we struggle so much as human beings, to be honest with ourselves? Why do we lie? Why do we lie? And how can I say why? I, I can say why I lie. You know, I could give theory and concept based on my experience now, but really, why did I lie? Let's just drop into that scared fear you know and and not when we hear the word fear we're like okay yeah fear but what does fear really mean like i on some level become addicted to fear i the the sensations of fear i become addicted to and i was a liar i lied to everybody i mean i like you know because it was the norm and i and when you're criminal you you pretty much you're lying without realizing you're lying but and also you think everybody's either interrogating you or questioning you and you don't want anybody to know what you're really doing because that could potentially get you in trouble right so on on fear was making me lie first and foremost the fear of getting caught the fear of people knowing what's really going on in my life and then what i noticed as i as i got older is actually forget like the, the world of crime and then going into this jail for a short time and then coming back into society was so potent because I realised, oh, actually, what's going on in jail is going on outside. <laughs> the dynamics are the same. Really, the dynamics are the same. blew my mind, right? It was a real big eye-opener. I'm so happy for the experience because I was like, oh, so everybody's lying on the outside too. No matter where I was going into, I was going into different circles. I was going into property. Everyone's lying. Why? Because they want to sell something because they're scared that they're not going to sell their product. They're not going to sell their property and they need to lie about it. Right, then I went into sales. Oh, well, if anybody knows sales, I mean, it, it should be called Lyles or something like that, you know? It's like, it should have lie in there somewhere under sales or sales, hashtag lies, you know? I don't know. So, or, or, or maybe not to be so broad, but I love the word you said, honesty. I mean, sales doesn't normally imply honesty. It means like, I need to lie because I potentially won't sell myself. If I don't sell my product or myself, I can't pay my rent, my children can't get fed. So instantly the foundation is based on um, insincerity, let's say. And people will play around with that and make it sound sincere to cover the need of their own ego to do what they need to do, right? They will justify it. Well, we have to survive. I do have two children to feed. I mean, it's only a white lie, you know, all of this jazz. And I asked, 
what is truth? So I had to face all of this. And then I noticed that, okay, fear, fear of our own survival, that makes us lie. As I just said, fear of not, you know, making money to survive, which comes under the same thing. Um, <clears throat> fear of being judged, right? Uh, fear of not being accepted. You will totally resonate with this one. And when we talk about community, as you know, being allowed in the gang, mm -hmm. you know, you've got to be a certain way. If I speak my truth and I and, and so on, I jeopardize my connection, yeah. right? So I'm fear fear of that. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, but th this, these were my ones. So, and then, yeah, fear of not being, did I say that? Accepted and, and fear of, yeah, fear of, um, I would just go not being loved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what it all comes down to. <laughs> And it's funny because we, we do all of like all of what you mentioned, other than maybe the last one is about how others see us. But that doesn't really answer why we lie to ourselves, right? right? And at the same time as all of that's going on, what I've noticed is that we so need to uphold an identity of how we see ourselves that is acceptable to us. Yes. That we're even willing to lie to ourselves so that we can see ourselves how we want to see ourselves, as opposed to the reality of beautiful. who we really are. Yeah, beautiful. I, I'm very curious, was this around, because I always tell people, I tell a lot of my clients to journal, and I always tell the story of you having seven years of morning pages. Yeah. <laughs> and I always just like have this vision of like all of your shares and all of these stacks of files. Was was this around the time that you started writing? Because I would imagine that was a really great tool in you being able to really confront yourself. Yeah, it was epic. And thank you. So it was six years, actually. It was six years pretty straight. So, you know, maybe miss or two, maybe I'm sick or whatever. But, you know, it was six years of writing. I accumulated, I don't know, over... I had at least... I remember throwing them away, actually. I had journals in different places. I had journals here. I had journals in my mum's in London and some other small ones accumulated. But I remember when I threw them out, I had about 20 journals, A4 journals, you know. And I would write this stream of consciousness, uh, three pages of um, uh, whatever you want. Stream of consciousness, come out onto the page, puke it out, whatever's there. And <clears throat> this was brought to me by a friend, Lucy, who's now, um, I just want to say, no expectation here, but she's now an author because of this practice as well. She told me about it. And yeah, this, this actually contributed, I feel, on a subconscious level, before these sort of key moments unfolded. Because I, I can't remember, I would have been probably two years before I met Anna, two years before I met the, the woman I mentioned earlier, I had been really you know, going at it with the, with, the, with the pages. So you were doing it in an attempt to be a better actor, really and truly, but it sort of morphed into something deeper. Well, well yeah, she, she was, yeah, she gave it me as a sort of, a, a way of releasing, yeah, just more, more like a, a way, she was really inspired by the creative, the creative aspect of it, Lucy. And she was like, oh, it's amazing, you just do it and you put it to bed. And she had she'd, uh, read this book called The Artist's Way, by Julia Cameron and Julia Cameron is known to be involved in film writing so it was definitely around the sort of acting vibe it's like okay this is a way to connect to our feelings and so on and of course little did I know that that would um, so to give context to the story after I started writing for a while, a while I just decided to write a hundred pages it turned out I didn't know it was going to be a hundred pages about a hundred or 102 pages of A4 about my life story 
And I, I really can't remember if somebody just suggested that or I just decided to write it. And what I did is I wrote really quite quite explicit details of what I had done and what others had done and, and wrote about these characters. But at the time, you can imagine, I was like, ah, oh, you know, you make this a movie, you know, because I was in the film world. I was like, oh, you know, I was watching films and I was watching lots of films and I was like, oh, this could be a great theatre show or whatever at the time. But little did I know that that was actually just really a cathartic experience because what actually um, transpired after that was more ease around beginning, I'm going to say beginning because it wasn't fully, to express myself about those. So what happened is I started saying to a few people that I trusted a little bit more about my past. Like I'd drop it in every now and again, <laughs> crying, yeah. yeah, I did some burglary. <laughs> You know, you know what I mean? <laughs> I, every day, you know, every now and again, ah, yeah, yeah, cocaine, tried a bit of cocaine, you know, it's like, it's, you know, but like still just like, is this going to be okay? And I want to tell you one story. And this is, this is around speaking our truth, is I got a job role as an actor. And um, it was to play alongside, uh, um, he's now called Sir, I don't, I'm not really into the whole Sir thing, but the, the David Jason. And if anybody's listening, you may remember Only Fools and Horses. It's a massive, quite global, but definitely UK-based sitcom. Very successful one. And I used to watch it. And Dale Boy was the main character with Rodney. And, of course, I was like this little Dale Boy myself. And then one of the first, you could say, professional jobs I got was with this uh, new show that this character, was, uh, Sir David Jason, was doing. It was called Diamond Geezer. And it was just a pilot show. And I got to play this character who, lo and behold, was in jail. And he had this small cameo sort of role, you could say, but I had to beat up David Jason to the point where he's laid on the floor in this scene and I'm kicking him in the belly because I tripped him over because he was pushing this trolley because he'd been in jail. And literally, I tell you, I, no word of a lie, the set, they were using an old prison which was literally identical to the one that I was in in terms of the wing and then I had this shirt similar to the shirts that they 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 wore some people wore not me but inside the the jail and then I'm kicking this Sir David Jason in the in the belly and I'm having this surreal moment right I'm having this total trip moment of like wait there I was a criminal I was in jail now I'm on a film a, a tv set kicking this character I've watched on telly from a, lot, a big chunk of my life and I was just having a freak moment I can't tell you it's a freak moment and to get this job they asked me in the audition they looked at me I did a little audition and then they asked me have you ever been to jail and in that moment I had this m moment before I even and I was like oh shit like what if I tell them I've been to jail and they don't want a criminal to play the part or what if I you know I say yes and then it helps, you know, I had this, this is all flash, flashing in before me in the moment. And, um, and then I was like, oh, fuck it, you know, I'm just going to say, I'm going to say the truth, because this is what I've been questioning, right? Can I live it? And I just said, yes, I have, actually. I <laughs> uh, did a, a short time in, uh, in, a, in, a, in a romance centre, actually, for crime. And they were like, yes, okay, thank you, right? And then they didn't say much else. And it's like, you know, we get in touch because that's what happens at an actor's audition. I left there and I was like, oh my God, should I have said that? Am I going to get the job? I had this, all, all this paranoia coming up. Maybe I'm going to, you know, something's going to happen to me. I was like, freaking out. Anyway, 
about three days later, they called up and said, yeah, you know, um, they were really happy with your audition and they liked it that you'd been in jail because they felt it would help towards the part. <laughs> so the truth paid off, right? So I left there going, yes, that was like a big step in like, okay, I can tell my truth. There you go. Beautiful. <laughs> no, it is so amazing and so relevant because we do this on a daily basis. You know, we have all of these tensions and fears that come and we're always trying to protect ourselves from this rejection and humiliation, which is our, our tyrant. Right. Right. <laughs> the real tyrant is this you know, fear that we're going to get humiliated. So yeah. we're constantly feeling like we need to project an image even to our own selves or something that we're not to, to protect us from yes. that. Yeah, and just to say for people listening, it's vulnerable, right? You're feeling, you don't really, you're not, you're not familiar with the feelings. And so when those feelings come up, it's really scary, yeah? Like, you feel really vulnerable, you feel small, you feel like you've done something wrong, right? There's all of that comes up and you start to tell the truth again. You, like you just said, you think you're gonna be judged by that or reprimanded in some way. So it really requires, depending on where you're at, these little stepping stones, you know, with people that you trust or, or you have these little moments, like I, I mean, I could list a number of them then when it just started getting easier and easier. And now, Yaz, Every time, every time I've spoken the truth, every single time, in any given moment, people have been grateful and it's opened up a portal for them to communicate truth. And then we've had these rich exchanges, yeah, and deeper connections every single time to the point now, you know, I, I just have got to a point where I don't know how else to live. You know, it's just, which is beautiful because, you know, it's almost like a full flip. You know, I, it was a time when I didn't know how to live other than lying, even though I couldn't have told you I was lying. Yeah. Right. But then I couldn't have told you because I was just lying. Right. Yeah. This is the, it was, it was the default state of being. At the same time, you obviously had to do some work to even get into the position where you knew what your truth is. Because this is something I see a lot with people is that we want to say the truth. We want to express the truth, but we, we don't know what our own truth is because we've lost that ability to really be in touch with ourselves. It's mm -hmm. almost a skill that you need to hone. And again, credit to you for generally for six years, because that just showed that you had a very deep commitment to actually figuring out who you really are. Yeah, yeah, and to say there as well, is how I, thankfully, thankfully, I was enjoying the process, you know, which makes a lot of difference. I invite people to journal now and they get like, they're stressed, they can't do three pages. And I said to them, you can't do three pages, write for three pages, <laughs> You can't do three pages. You know, write that down. And they're like, yeah, it takes too long. Then practice getting faster. You know, it's, you know, it's like I, I sort of have that mentality of don't tell me you can't write three yeah. pages. And then people say, I don't know what to write. And I say, you don't know what to write. You need to listen to what's going on in your head, boy, or whoever it is, because you know what? You've got shit going on there 24-7. There's plenty to write, trust yeah. me. And this is another thing that you described earlier. There's a threshold, Yaz. There's like this little threshold trying to hold us, maybe you'd call it a tyrant, that's trying to hold us back from actually freeing ourselves. The saboteur, the yes. saboteur yes. archetype comes out. Yes. To give you all the good reasons why it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Stupid idea, no time, I can't write three pages, there's nothing, I'm not thinking of anything, I'm numb, I don't feel, 
the list is just, you know, you will come up, you said it earlier, maybe not in this podcast and another one, about how slight it is, how conniving it is, how it just wants to keep you small. And you have to do your very best each day to go, no, you know what? I'm going to step into my strength. I'm going to be strong. I can be vulnerable. It's okay. I can speak my truth. It's no problem. I'm not going to get, I'm not going to get killed. You know, the most important thing that I feel on the planet right now we can do in order to free ourselves and to support others is to speak our truth. Because if you think about it, what else, what else do we have? What else do we have? Now we're gonna, the physical form's gonna go at some point. What else do we have? Rather speak our truth and, and deal with the consequences of that than stay in fear, keep ourselves small and deal with the consequences of that. For sure, and I think when you express yourself, we don't know what truth is, really and truly. And we exactly. don't know what our truth is. But if we don't start to express... Something I realised along my journey is that what I thought was the truth in the beginning turned out to not be the truth. Exactly. And I've had quite a deep dive with this in the past, even just a few weeks, to be honest, where sometimes the truth is silent. Right? So let's say someone mm. does something that bothers me. Right? And in that moment, I want to tell her, oh, why did you do that? You shouldn't do that. Mm. Right? And... On the surface, you would think that's the truth. That's how I feel. I feel irritated and I should tell that person. Right. Right. But when you actually do a lot of this journaling and you go deeper into listening to that voice in your head, you will realize that there are two voices in there. Yes. One of them comes from a place which is not still. It's almost like an urge. Exactly. Right? Like, oh, I have to tell them because yes. I'm so bothered. Right. And then if you drop a bit deeper than that, there's the real truth underneath that. Yes. And that can sometimes be like, oh, yeah, I don't like that. And that's OK. Right. And that's that's my truth. Right? right. Which to myself, I can say that person bothered me. It doesn't necessarily mean I have to go and be like, oh, you shouldn't do this or this. Um, and I think this is a really interesting thing that we can talk about as well, because there are very, very different ways that that yeah. truth comes up into our life. And that idea of. How do we know our truth? How do we know the truth always starts from find the truth within first and then that truth is going to revel out? Yeah, or, or, or maybe there's a little caveat on that and it's so beautiful that you bring this up because this distinction is really important. And so I'll give you a couple of examples. So I started using the term transparent communication. So trans being transparent, speaking your truth, is not brutality and what i want to say to that is exactly what you just said speaking your truth does not mean i now tell you what i think of you every time you come into my space so you walk in and go yeah well i speak my truth by the way you're an asshole just felt you was an asshole yeah and uh, your shoes do not match your outfit dick you know what i mean you know that's not speaking truth yeah transparent communication is in fact or truthful communication authentic communication whatever is an inside job and we need to play with this distinction really importantly because I love what Yaz just said. It's almost, it's twofold. There's layers. So whenever I'm speaking and practicing to speak my truth, I'm always speaking from I, meaning that I feel like this or um, the way that you, the way that this person acted made me feel like that. So why, what, can I check in with myself right now why I feel like that? And I'm doing a whole heap of process work inside. And then when it comes to the point of maybe if I need to articulate this, I'm speaking from that place of truth, not from, oh, by the way, I don't like your attitude, you're arrogant, and I just, I don't like how you make me feel, yeah? So I prefer not to be around you, for example. That's one, one way to look at it. 
And the other was, it's so beautiful when we can, so earlier you said, oh, you know, um, yeah, how, how do we speak our truth? How do you get, get to know? And even now, don't believe everything I'm saying. Like, I might say something that I think is my truth. Yasmin might say something, and then instantly I can say, ah, actually, yeah, what I just said is not fully true for me, because what you just said is, is helped me to see something I couldn't see. And then there's this idea that if I don't know what to say, my mum said this to me once, yeah, she was like, oh, this transparent communication is kind of nice, but I don't want to tell everybody everything that I'm thinking and feeling, Simon. And I was like, yeah, I understand. And then she said, and also, I don't know if I want to be transparent. And I said, isn't that beautiful? You just spoke your truth, right? So people think sometimes, oh, 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 oh I don't want to. Okay, but what about when you start to communicate with somebody, you say that, by the way, there's things that I'm feeling that I don't feel like expressing right now because maybe I don't feel safe enough or maybe maybe you're not the type of person that I feel comfortable enough with sharing right now. Do you see, does that make sense, Yaz, if you want to speak to that? But it just feels that there's, there's much more going on inside than there is this projection outside. Yeah, beautiful. I think you, you summed it up well. I hear a lot of this, the same message from people when they first hear of this term, transparent communication, you know, which ultimately is just a commitment to be more authentic and honest in our interactions with others. Yes. That also, as you said, has to come hand in hand with a sort of emotional maturity where we can deeper perceive what truth is. And because we have this tendency as humans to want to blame others <laughs> for how we feel, it is a bit of a knife edge to walk I remember recently I had this interaction with a friend and this very close friend of mine did something that I, made me feel very unsupported right. and, and I was just totally triggered and she can't I'm, I'm that kind of person that needs to learn how to control my speech <laughs> for me it's very easy I don't know to, that like, I don't know that like. for me it's very easy to say things it's much harder to so it's uh, something I've been practicing but in this particular moment she came she said she noticed I was a bit disturbed she said what's up and I said oh this you know I needed your help and you let me down I felt very unsupported and this friend just sort of turned to me and said oh you know you're right I probably should have helped you in that instant and in that moment because she took complete responsibility for her side I was totally screwed in that moment because exactly. I couldn't continue blaming her exactly so if she had said like oh no blah 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 if she had made it into an argument right. I could have continued yes. being entrenched and 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 indulging and I'm a victim of someone who's not supporting me <laughs> right but because she didn't in that moment she just completely neutralized me and I was left with my own crap <laughs> where I was like damn this is on me <laughs> It's all my fault. Oh, God. And there is this moment, you know, where our ego just struggles and it doesn't want to let go. And then exactly. as soon as in that moment, you can just say, this was my choice. Yeah. I'm not a victim here. Yeah. And then the real truth came up, which was, yes, I felt unsupported. And I'm it was no one's fault right. necessarily. Or even if it was, no big deal, right? Yes. We, we're human beings. Everyone makes mistakes. It's all exactly. good, really and truly. But... You know, as you were saying that, it always reminded me of this work that we need to do to always take it deeper. Which you you know, just... in, that, in that moment, I was like, I feel unsupported. Yes. That was the truth. Yes. But when I had no one to blame, the real deeper truth was I was not supporting myself. Right, in that moment. And even like not being able just to say, um, 
the, the actions that you did earlier made me feel unsupported, right? I chose that. You didn't make me feel unsupported, but I, I was feeling unsupported. And like you said, she beautifully owned her part. But if you would have said to her, which you did a little bit anyway, which she was awesome, by the way, because normally when you point the finger... Defence. Right, defence, right? Instantly, it's like, well, uh, well, you did this the other day. Oh, by the way, last week, do you remember when I was walking out? Yeah, I've been holding on to that one as well. Yeah, yeah, I got you back with that one, didn't I? You know, it's like touche, isn't it? Like, you get swords out. Who, who's done what to who? Whereas, I love this, um, uh, a guru that I used to, many years ago, listen to. And he always said the, um, the, the when you point one finger at another, you point three back at yourself. And the thumb is the witness. And if you could see us today on video, you'll see me, you know, doing the point with the thumb up in the air. And this idea that whenever I'm saying you did this, I'm saying three times to myself, I did this. And this is deep ownership. This is taking full responsibility. And I think that authentic communication, honesty, transparent communication, whatever term you like to use or what resonates is this is full responsibility that I can take care of my emotions, take care of my thoughts, feelings, and my words. And I know that my word has power. And that if I say something with venom to you, I have the potential of uh, being to toxic, a toxic spell into 60 to 70 trillion cells of your being. And do I really want to do that? Do I really want to communicate in that way? No, I don't. I want to actually send you 60 trillion cells of love. I want, to, I want to boost your cells with love. So if I can take full responsibility to do that, I can at least practice showing up from that place and be vulnerable and own my shit and, and, and also yes, own my resistance. Because, you know, I want Dara or whoever is close to me to take the blame. <laughs> take it, make it easier for me. But then it's like, oh yeah, and, and maybe we... And we, we may have not said this earlier, but this idea of saying sorry as, as well. This is about authentic communication. Can I just apologise that actually the way I did communicate there wasn't actually how I wanted to, you know? So that's what, that's what pops up for me. Yeah, you, as you were speaking, I was just thinking of this idea of receptivity, that we, we find it very hard to receive, good and bad. Right. You see this with money sometimes, where someone wants to give you money, you say, no, 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 we, we don't want to because it's very vulnerable. Of course, it's exactly the same thing with criticism or feedback or ideas that we don't like. And I just love your perspective on this because obviously coming from a very toxic, over-masculine environment where probably receptivity was at an all-time low, right? Because yeah. if you were receptive, you're going to probably die, right? Right? Because it's just too much weakness to show in that situation. Off, huh? You, you have to off. be really like yeah. armoured up all the time yeah. to suddenly... Or well, not suddenly over over this years you've transitioned yourself to train yourself to have this skill to be able to receive what other people are telling you without it threatening your survival and your safety and yeah. even if that's just the survival of my identity. Right, and just to say there with you, like, I still get the the, the butterflies, huh? When, when I go into an environment, a moment where I think, okay, I'm going to receive some truth now from these people or we need to go into this space so we start sharing, I always get a little bit sweaty and like, oh, boy, what's going to come, you know, am I ready for this? You never know, right? And then it's like, and every time it ends up being very heart-opening, you know, and often I've cried and, and, and so on. And there's a beautiful guy that I love um, called uh, Jiddu Krishnamurti. And one of the things he said that stuck with me in some of the... The, the literature that I've read of his is truth arrives uninvited 
So when we come into an encounter with another person and we're, we're playing, you know, we start off with our conversation and we have our ideas, concepts and theories and so on. Well, when we play with that, you know, with our personas and whatever we think we're bringing because we think we know something as we spoke about earlier, right? When, when all that sort of drops away and we just have a willingness to come together and not think that we know everything and not believe that we have to be right, then truth has the potential of revealing itself. And then when the, when the truth is felt, there is no second guessing Yaz. And I know you know this. There's no, there's no, there's no like afterwards talking about it and going, oh, was that truth or not truth? I don't know. There's none of that. It just pierces through all the illusion and you get to, you get to sample it. And in that moment, guess what? There ain't no words. No words at that point. And, and really, if anything, everything I'm doing that tingles, if anything I'm doing and practicing with where I'm at, it's to actually create the potential for that to, to, have to happen. That's beautiful. I'm going to remember that because I've actually been thinking a lot this week how there are so many things that we don't know. Right? We were so bad at seeing ourselves from the outside. Mm. I'm sure... There are so many things that I do from the wrong place or from ego or from a lack of truth and so on. And you don't see those. Mm. It's very difficult to see. If you're seeing it, it's not your shadow, but the shadow is still there. Right. And that is so beautiful because that idea that it comes in uninvited, it has to be uninvited because if you were inviting it, you'd already know it. And then it's not a shadow. Right. <laughs> so it has to, it has to come and unsettle you and throw you off your guard because you have to see something new that before you didn't see. Right. And that is so challenging for us because it, it threatens the very fabric of our existence, the fabric of who we are and what, everything we know about ourselves. I think we're shifted. Exactly. You don't feel the ground underneath your feet and you need to re-adjust. Right. Yes. You're, you're actually in that moment and free-falling. That's what's actually happening. The, the, the ground has gone beneath you. You're literally, whatever you want to term it. You ain't got no parachute either. <laughs> yeah. And you ain't, nobody got time for that, right? It's like, seriously, you got, I love that. You've got no parachute. You have to trust and your lovely word, which I know you're buzzing with right now, surrender. You have to give up. And I love what you just described. You actually have to, all your personas have to die, right? There's this, there's this beautiful uh, saying that in that moment of... Uh, play and that moment of reconnecting to the whole if you want or being the sense of wholeness in those moments where you're just so present everything else falls away yet the true person let's say the true personality or the true self if you will the big s self gets to be felt but every other time they're just fabrications of, of the personas that we've created along the way, or what I would call the masks, you know? Yes. And, and so many of those are, you know, they're, they're um, what's the word, trenched in actually lies. Yeah, ultimately, they're trenched in lies. Yeah, and the ultimate irony is that they are the biggest barrier to us being happy. Right. <laughs> Even though we think that they are what our happiness and survival depends on, they are right. the biggest Block, and I actually got an inspiration to ask you, maybe please, please. if you would be so kind <laughs> as to share maybe a, a couple or one of your most inspiring spiritual experiences. Mm. Uh, I'll keep talking while you think, because I know it's, yeah. a, it's a deep question. And the reason why I ask this is because I've had a lot of deep experiences where 
mostly through no effort of my own, some force from some blessing from the outside, brought me into a moment in my life where those masks fell away. Mm. And when they do fall away, when all the lies crumble, when all the identities, all the good and the bad, they go and you're left, as you said, with that pure essence of who you really are. And the, the beauty and the joy in that moment is so profound. And it's a real fork in the road, I think, in our life and how we move forward and how we can draw upon that energy to create very long-lasting change in our life. And I'm always fascinated because, mm. you know, the, the archetypes are the same, but the personal experience is always completely unique. Yes. So the one that's popping up, if I can tell this to your, to your listeners um, with uh, clarity. So, so I, 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 I create retreats and we take people on a retreat. And from going on a retreat, I'm putting myself in a position of, let's say, authority, or I'm putting myself in a, in a, in a position of maybe a... Leadership. A leadership, exactly, not authority, maybe leadership, right? And people look up to me on some level. So what happens is that the, the retreat itself is an invitation to strip away all the lies, because that's my quest, right? And how we can access the truth. And so on this one retreat, it was a, the most dense retreat we'd ever been on it's this huge castle in portugal which we thought initially great the castle you know well this castle had some serious energies in it i have no clue what's happened in this place it was like you know a real castle no messing around we were shocked that we even got to have this as a retreat space because our other place burned down in the big fires in portugal and we didn't know a retreat was happening so we ended up getting this castle we're like yay kings and queens in the castle little did we know that was where we we're going to be more than kings you were and queens. in the dungeons yeah we were in the dungeons <laughs> more like right so anyway we're, we're going through this process and we're leading people on, on on the journeys that we take them and at one point there was a lot of friction in the space a lot of friction and just a lot of skepticism and resistance and it was just it was really it was it was it was palpable yes yeah? so you could cut it yeah it was thick and i didn't really know what to do yeah but i have this thing where i always want to just trust in transparency this is my thing trust in transparency so anyway we're getting prepared for this afternoon opening circle and dara's in their room and we're not really sure what we're going to do and we can feel it and then dara says oh maybe i'll open the circle today because normally i would not every time but at the time i would open the circle and something's something's going on in the field and and we had this conversation outside with this participant and she shared that she wasn't there was like a lot of people were feeling that it, the, the space was not sincere and there was all this other stuff and she was just sharing her reflections and it, and it sparked something in me and and um Anyway, I went upstairs, I, I jumped in the shower, and Dara said, oh, we're going to open now. And I said, no, I, I, I'm going to open, right? I'm just going to open. And she said, well, I thought I was opening. I said, I, something's coming through me. I have no clue what it is. I'm in the shower. I just have to do this. I don't even know what I'm doing. She said she didn't feel trusted. She felt like it was all friction. I go out into the circle. I'm naked, but naked, right? The retreat's called naked, but I'm like, I don't normally go out there naked, right? It's just like I walked out naked sat down, still didn't know what was happening. I'm in the circle and then I just open the circle and I just start speaking. It just whatever wanted to come out, a bit like a morning page. It's just like, bleh. I start speaking, speaking, speaking the truth. And then what happened was 
I don't really know what happened next, but let's just say that some sort of catharsis took place where something much greater than me took over. I started to feel this tension move from my stomach up into my chest, into my throat, and my speaking became uh, blocked. And the only thing I could really do was roar. I could roar, right? And I sort of roared and this sound came out and then I moved into tears. And prior to that, the things that I'd shared were pretty much like everything that I'd been going through, what I felt in the space, what that woman had said downstairs, you know, it just all came out. And this is like 15 people in a circle, right? And all of a sudden I'm laid naked, sort of a bit in the middle of the circle, having done this roar, crying my eyes out and feeling so um, vulnerable, like never before. And then I came, I can't remember all the, the little bits that happened, but I came back into the circle. Dara held me. She then, she said, she then invited the circle to share things with me that they loved about me, right? Even now I'm welling up just thinking about this. So I'm sat there feeling all this, you know, just really literally as I can just describe it as I didn't want all of that burden or whatever was on me or whatever energy entities were on me, whatever it was, it was, it was, it was not the truth. It was not love in that moment. And then what happened is through that expression and then the people reflecting to me these things that they loved about me and me crying my eyes out and just being in that space, so vulnerable, um, uh, like a child, it was like I felt like a child, so innocent. And I stood, and I, and basically that went on for I don't know how long. But like afterwards, I just was being held by one of the participants and just laying with them for a while. It was like I don't know what I went through. I still can't fully describe it. But what I would say is that something took over. It was a totally you would call it a spiritual uh, uh, catharsis. And afterwards. That led to a number of other events, which we you know I don't need to share them all now, but led to a number of other events of what I would call the bigger love coming in. And what it did for Dara and I was a huge shift in the dynamics of Dara and I, and a huge shift, you're going to love this maybe, I ended on this, that, that love, to access love, you have to be fully committed. And... What happened on the way home from that retreat is I had a, a huge realization that I was not fully committed to love. And then what happened, I get tingles as I say that, and what happened was I told this to Dara, we're driving down the motorway, like, you know, 100 kilometers an hour heading back to the airport. And she had a moment as well. And then we ended up sharing the fears that we both had to commit. Oh man, I feel sad. I feel tears coming up now where we felt scared, but we had been doing what you said, which was masquerading like we were committing to love, but we hadn't fully committed to love in that moment. And that was a profound experience and that tingles all over my body. So, so I don't know if that is a, you know, an example that you were thinking, but that was where, I, and I can't describe what happened really in that, in that fully. Yeah, you're reminding me of a few days ago sharing a, a teaching and my teacher was just saying how to really surrender to God, we have to be like a baby. Mm. As you said, the baby, when it cries, it doesn't say what it needs exactly. It just sort of receives, it opens itself up to receive mm. 
in that moment. Yeah. And this is our problem very often, that we go around in these adult bodies thinking we have it all sorted, thinking we know, thinking we're in control. Mm. But actually, if we want to connect to something bigger than ourselves, then actually we just need to stop and say, you know, why don't have it all figured out? Mm. Show me, help me, guide mm. me and connect to something bigger than yourself. Yeah. But we're just too scared to be the baby. Yeah. Because the baby is naked, right. right? Just there, like, oh, right. it can't do anything for itself. Right. Yeah, and, 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 and who and in that moment, it felt like, what have, almost like simultaneously, what have I done? In the, I brought all these people here. And, I, and, and actually, as you say that, it was like a, it was like a baby's wail. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was a roar, but it was also like a baby's wail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. And I mean, credit to you for just having the strength to be that vulnerable in a group, because I think it's something we really struggle with in general, and men particularly, right. because again, we have this conditioning that the man should be strong, the man should have it all together, the man should lead. Right. And we don't realize that actually the biggest leadership sometimes is to just be honest yeah. and show we haven't got it all figured out. And only then are we letting something bigger than ourselves come in and help us. Oh, I'm tingling all over because that's when we surrender to the higher power that wants to lead. And, and actually, oh, that actually, you said earlier, no, but you said earlier you, drop, you, you jump and there's no um, uh, parachute, but there is. Love, love is the parachute, but you have to trust to jump, free fall, and then it gets avoided. Because actually that's what I did. What I did is I just like, I don't even want to hold all of that. I'm just like, you know, what? You know what I mean? It's just, I don't want to hold all of your stuff, all of your projections, all of my projections and my stuff. I want it. I don't want it, you know? And, and that really was a, a calling. And ironically, as everything you said, but do you know what? Some people, and it was some, some women, women that were on the, on the thing, they were so appreciative of that uh, vulnerability. But afterwards, everybody... Um, held me in a very different way you know just in terms of like even there was no more the bit like what you said earlier this idea that somebody knows it was like oh okay we're all here almost we're all equals as well right yeah yeah i mean as we spoke of in the podcast we recorded for for your channel you know the when people put us in a position of authority or leadership it is a burden it is a huge burden and in fact when you do spend time with these gurus and masters, the more I spend time with them, the more I said, I don't want to be that. Mm. Because you really see what a burden it was. When I first came into spirituality, I said, oh, I'd love to be a guru and help others. And allow what what better pleasure in this world than to enlighten others. But when you really see how much strength it takes to hold that kind of energy, to hold everyone's projections, to hold everyone's insecurities and to still stay in that love and to see past all of that illusion into the soul. It is, as you said, a burden. It's a burden worth carrying, yes. right? Because, um, you know, it's like Lord of the Rings, the burden of the ring. It right. was worth carrying right. because you saved the... Right. The shadow the, 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 the All the lands. <laughs> it's been a while since I no watched Lord of the Rings. But I love that film because it is such a beautiful reflection of, totally. of our lives, which is we all have this burden of the ring. What's the burden of the ring? It's the burden of our own shadow, the burden mm. of our own, you know, all of the shadows that we carry with us. But as you said, with, with a bit of humility and a bit of honesty, we can just show each other that... No matter how many burdens we carry, no matter how much authority or leadership we have, we're all human beings at the end of the day. We all have our own stuff and 
the more honest you are about that, I think the, the, the more inspirational your leadership really is. Yeah. Thank you so much. And if there's anything, any message you'd like to leave our guests, usually actually I ask, it's been a while since I've recorded this, so I forgot my own, uh, my own <laughs> ending to the podcast, but usually I ask my guests to share one thing that you feel would help your help our audience go within, whether that's a book, a podcast, a phrase, a word. I mean, listen, listen to all of Yasmin's podcasts. I mean, that's <laughs> standard. Um, I haven't even listened to them all, but each of them give that invitation. Uh, just, just a little, actually going back to the woman we mentioned earlier, Julia Cameron, when, when I started writing, and I just share this, is that she shared with me that was a great anchor in my path. And it was, our deepest wounds are the greatest gift to give to humanity. And then that was rephrased by another um, messenger along the path, which is, your mess is your message. And so those parts of yourself that you think are unworthy, not good enough, you know, you don't want to go there into the wounds, into the trauma, and so on, they're actually your treasures. And if you can go into them bravely and then express whatever comes from them, into the world, you will be in service to something far greater than yourself. Beautiful. What a way to end. <laughs> I also love how you get so animated when you talk. So the, the, <laughs> the inner actor in you, it really comes out. I love watching you speak. <laughs> Next time we're going to get you on video so yes. the audience can see your awesome facial expressions. <laughs> so thank you everyone for tuning in. If you're still watching, if you're still listening to the end, I have so much appreciation for you because... You know, this podcast is, is not for everyone. It's for those people who really want to go within. And I feel like it's such a courageous act to do, to do want to have this inner spiritual journey in a, in a culture that often tries to keep us on the surface of our life. So I hope that these podcasts will inspire you, give you a bit of support and remind you that you're not alone. You're not crazy. And if you are embarking on this inner journey, it is going to bring you a lot of love and fulfillment in your life. Thank you all and see you next episode. Yeah. Hashtag go within. Mm.